I am a watcher. Part of a secret society of men and women who observe and record, but never interfere. Mama, just killed a man. Put a gun against his head. Pulled my trigger, now he's dead. Good evening and welcome to another episode of A Watcher's Chronicles. I'm your host, Jay, and tonight we'll be talking about inspiration. So let's start off talking about something that's just happened. November 11th, 2018, Veterans Day. But this is an especially important one. You see, it's been 100 years since World War I ended on November 11th, 1918. The day that would establish Veterans Day, the day that we currently honor and celebrate the lives, the service of those men and women of the United States Armed Services. Thank you for all that you do, guys. For those who've come home, welcome home. For those who are going to be coming home, we look forward to your return. For the people in services, their inspiration comes from a variety of areas, but often from people. Their leaders is one of the big things. You know, think of the drills instructors for the Marine Corps. But a friend of mine that I graduated high school, he would go into the Air Force and he would finally retire as a Chief Master Sergeant, Kevin Tui. Kevin would be out there and would be inspiring men with his leadership and everything else to do their jobs, to be safe about their jobs, and make it back each day alive. I remember when he retired, I read some of the letters to him, and their admiration for him, their respect for him, as he made sure they survived from day to day as he cared for them, and would also inspire them to do the same for others. This is the inspiration we have seen in our armed forces but it's also inspiration that we will see in our own daily lives. As usual this week, I'll be talking about an episode of The Twilight Zone, and I've also got my first movie review. As I do The Watcher, as I'll explain once again, The Watcher Chronicles are based off of the television show Highlander. This is not about the Highlander, of course. In the show, the Watchers were a group that would watch and observe the Immortals, they would record their lives, record their battles, their losses, the victories, because at the end of time, there would only be one immortal remaining. And this group would document all of them so that history would know who and what they were. In my capacity as a watcher, I watch the world around me, comment on different things I see, sometimes funny, sometimes not so funny. But it is just what I see. I find different things to talk about. I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone, and I like to find ways that the Twilight Zone will fit into my weekly theme or however often I do choose to do this. So let's go ahead and get going. Inspiration. Inspiration is that wonderful thing that, I was about to say inspires us, but is the one that gets us out of the bed to say we want to do something, to give us a goal. We don't just suddenly wake up and go, today I think I am going to write a symphony. There has to be inspiration in it. Sometimes it's going to be in the, the world around you, in what you see maybe, the sounds you've heard, people you've heard. It will be so many different things. I really come down for inspiration. There are three main things. It's the who, the what, and the where. Now, the who, that's obvious. That's going to be different people who are going to inspire you. I mentioned Kevin. He would inspire his men to do different things. But one of the people that truly inspired me in my life is my dad. My dad was a man, let's introduce you to my dad real fast, I guess. My dad was a man who wanted to be a doctor. 
and he went to college. He did his best. But when it came time to go to medical school, his college was not prestigious enough. So he chose a different avenue. He would go to medical technology school, and he would work as a medical technologist. For those who don't know, this is the, the blood guys in the laboratory. He would be the guy that when you come in, he's going to stick a needle in your arm, draw some blood, run those tests. Along the way, he's going to take specimens that the doctors have collected, and they're going to run other tests on them to help determine what is going on with you. I remember as a kid watching him work with the Petri dishes. He took those throat cultures and would use them to contaminate a dish and then treat it with different things, and they would see which germ grew, how it reacted. And that's how they were able to determine, is this a strep virus? Is this a staph infection? What was going on? And they would be able to return this information back to the doctor so they would be able to actually prescribe a treatment. It was all done by hand back in those days, working with the Petri dishes, contaminating them, cultures to see what grew, blood counts, staring into a microscope with a special little tool next to them and a timer during which they would do a quick blood count, writing the numbers down from the results. He was good at what he did, but I also got to watch him with people. He worked in the laboratory on Friday nights. That's how he paid for a lot of my, my family, my sister, my, myself, the things we did. And one thing about him, he would drive the people crazy in the office. They would say, we need blood drawn from like 232A. He would respond, they don't have a patient named 232A. He insisted on getting the patient's name, the room number, bed, all, all of that. He would go in, he verified everything, but he would then introduce himself. He would talk to people, put them in ease as he told them what he was doing that night. He was a man who worked very hard over the years. I, I will always remember the eulogy I gave for him. He passed away three years ago. I called the eulogy Blood, Sweat, and Tears as I talked about this man, as his life and blood, the hard life that he lived, and the emotions that followed him along through it. But his eulogy is a story from three years ago and not to be repeated tonight. But my dad's one of my inspirations in my life. Other inspirations, a couple guys from Highlander, Anthony DeLonges. At the Highlander convention last year, we got to talk to some people. Anthony would talk about his ambition of riding horses, riding horses in every country. He was able to make that dream come true, but he had to work out it. That inspiration was there, but he had to find a way to make it happen. He had to do this himself, and he achieved it and he is a he's in the movies he is a stuntman he is a fight coordinator in batman 2 he would teach michelle pfeiffer how to use a whip you've seen him in other movies roadhouse he would play one of the bad guys master of the universe where he even doubled for franklin jell at one point so here's a man who found ways to achieve his goal his inspiration another man clay boris the director Clay would direct 10 episodes of The Highlander. He's from Toronto, Canada. And up there, there's a small part of that town called, he would call Cabbage Town. Basically, it's the poor section. And he really wanted out of there. He loved movies. He wanted to make movies. He wanted to direct movies. He wanted to be able to do this. And he had to do things as part of school projects. One school project he talked about was a short bit where this kid was going through the area of being careful, made the wrong turn, and found a gang there where he was beaten just for being in the wrong part of town. 
Clay would work, and he's achieved his goal. He has made it out of Cabbage Town. When we were sitting there last year afterwards, he was sitting there wearing a T-shirt that said Cabbage Town on it. Great to talk to, telling us his stories, talk about the the things he directed, the, the the episodes of The Highlander. But here's a man, once again, had a dream, had a goal, had that inspiration, but had to make it happen on his own. The next part of inspiration, where? Places that inspire you. People are inspired about places to go. They want to go see the, the, the pyramids of Egypt. They want to go see, oh, okay. There's so many. Let's let's go into America here, up at Mount Rushmore. Maybe they want to go to the beach, the highest mountain. They want to go visit Maine and be able to see that northernmost spot, looking out into the Atlantic. Anything, a place can go. Now, if this place inspires you, how you make it happen? How do you have to make? How do you have to work for it? That's the key. That's what's going to be up to you. But the inspiration. That's what gives you that goal. That's what gives you that dream. And the last thing is the what. Now, I think, okay, we've got who, we've got where, and a what. Well, think about it. What inspires you? What events are going to inspire you? For some people, it may be a terrorist act and inspires them to join the military. That did actually happen to my grandfather. There's two reasons on that, actually. In 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And my grandfather was a preacher who did not make a lot of money. But he knew there was going to be a lot of men dying in the upcoming war. He did two things. One was to help his family. He would get three to four times the amount of money he was getting as a preacher. He joined the United States Army, serving as the only Protestant chaplain to the 82nd Airborne. He was on the front lines. He saw a lot of death. I mean, things happen, and when things happen, it inspires people to take action. We've seen it in our own country. We've seen school shootings that have inspired people to stand up and take action about that. We've seen, I'm going to hit a couple things here, don't get, if anybody gets upset, I'm sorry. We've seen issues with immigration where illegals have killed people, and this has inspired some one in particular, to take action to stop those who would repeatedly violate our borders, commit crimes, violent crimes, and kill people, to prevent this from happening again, even though his actions, his attitude would become a controversy for him. We've seen families separated of the immigrants, others inspired to come in and bring them back together. It's these what situations that occur that will cause people to jump into action. Something you had no clue about, but because it happens, you feel it calling to you, and you feel the need to take that call to action. So if you feel that need, you have to do it. If you sit there and simply say, somebody needs to do something, well, maybe that somebody is you, because nobody else is going to do it. This is important to you. It may cost you. At the same time, it may be worth everything it costs you, and it's worth a fight because it's important to you. So do it. You found the inspiration. Make it happen. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle.
And with that, I'd like to move into our next portion. It's time to head over to the gym for our, what I call the fitness center hijinks. I know it's a quick little break from inspiration. It's in, the gym's a great place. People go to there to sit there and improve themselves, improve their body, to be among others. The gym says it's a great place to come and meet others, even though people go there and stick headphones into their ears so they don't have to interact with anybody else. Okay, that's a little strange. It happens. I like having a little bit of fun with this. First off, I never make fun of people there who are, especially overweight, trying to improve themselves. The people I'm going to make fun of are the people who are just that fun to make fun of, or they're just outstanding characters. This time, instead of really making fun of us people, well, maybe a little bit, I'm going to talk about a couple of people. When we go there, it's like I said, you have these, you have your earphones on, and you see the world around you without interacting with it. And you see the same faces coming day after day. They'll have the same kind of attire on. we got one guy, he always wears a, a full a hoodie with the sleeves cut off, and then he wears his hood up over his head and his earphones over the hood over his ears. I'm not sure how that works, but it, it works for him. Well, we got two people. I give them nicknames. The first one is the Colonel. The Colonel is this man. He is an older gentleman, bald head, the military-style mustache. And when he walks around, he eyeballs that room. He it looks like he's in charge of his troops seeing who's where, what's going on, how to command what's going on next as he goes and does his next exercise. The man is solid. Had a chance to talk to him one day. We'd seen each other in, time, in the gym a few times. And finally, just, you know, one of us broke the ice. The man said he has been often, that he's been often mistaken for being military. He's never done military in his life. His voice is good old southern Texas country. Nice guy. He's got more back problems than I have. And it's just one of those misconceptions on people in the gym you're going to find. This next person, I call her Mean Girl. Now, Mean Girl is one, when she first gets to the gym, she has, first off, long, beautiful hair. It's like um, blondish, whitish hair. And very, very well-dressed. At times, I think she should be going to the, high, to the higher-class gym that's a few miles away, but she's a mine. What can I say? But it's very common that I'll see her walking upstairs as she gets finished changing and is heading upstairs to head to the treadmill. And I realized one day she had her phone on and she was literally doing a video FaceTime call while walking through the gym. I have no idea if she was doing this while she was in the locker room. All the way up to her treadmill, sets her phone down on the treadmill while gets the treadmill going and continues to have her FaceTime while she's on the treadmill. I, I kind of don't understand. It's like when you go to the gym, it's like, why do you want to sit there and just be in a phone call with somebody else? But, that, hey, that's her business, so she's doing it. But it just seems a little strange. But those are my two people for the – that's my two crazy people for the month. But we're going to have a little fun here with douche knots. I continue to see him, but there's one guy I'm going to have to apologize for my continued hatred of that man bun, the douche knot. For those who've listened to me before, you know I hate it. I mean, I've got very long hair. And I see these guys running around. They have their hair pulled up into this little tiny two-inch ball of hair so they can go around like they've got some kind of ponytail. But inside of their – this hair's never going to be in their face. But there's this one guy. Dude, I apologize to you. You have a right to wear a douche knot. The reason being, I saw him leaving one day as he took his hair down and ran his hands through it. 
in that instance, I realized that he was a fan of a musical group as he had the V-cut Flock of Seagulls haircut going on. There it was for the whole world to see, and for the first time I thought, you know, in his case, that douche knot just works out better. That's it for the gym this week. We've got a lot more to cover, so we're going to head on out of there. And we're going to head over to one of my favorite places. We're going to head to the TV. We're going to grab a disc, and we're going to pop it into the old Blu-ray, and we are going to turn on the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. For this week on the Twilight Zone, I had to find a show that matched my topic for the week, which was inspiration. And I found it in the guise of Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury would, some of his stories would be used, and this one is I Sing the Body Electric. The synopsis of this story, we have a young man, he's a widower, he has three children. He's trying to make it in life, you know, hold down a job, raise his children, his, you know, he doesn't have any relatives that can help him any longer, and he, he's trying to find nannies, but nothing works out. He can't figure out what to do when he runs across this store. This is a store called I Sing the Body Electric. He goes in, he has a talk with a salesman, and he soon come, comes home. He's excited. He talks to his three children. He tells them what it is, and they go down there, and they, he introduces the children to the salesman. I Sing the Body Electric will be able to provide a robotic form, and this form will basically be a nanny or however you want to describe them, a, a babysitter, a guide to the children. And the children get to start picking things out for her. They get to pick out her hair, which hand she has. They like certain color eyes, a voice that sounds, you know, not, it sounds the right age for them and it sounds comforting. They put all these things into the machine and they tell them when it's ready, we'll let you know. So it would be a little bit later. And this lady, very nice lady, matronly, walking down the street, and she sees the kids, and she calls out to them. She knows them by name. And they go up and say, are you who we think you are? She bends down, shows the boy the eyes, the color of the marbles that he would love, and he knows it's her. Introduces himself to the three kids. Two of the kids love her. They immediately decide she's grandma, and she settles into the home to help raise the children. But the third child, the third child refuses to accept her. No matter what she does, this the third girl, this young girl, will not accept her. One day when they're out trying to go in the park, have a walk, the young girl just can't take it and runs away crying to get away from this robotic form. And she's always standing in the middle of the street to get away from her when a car comes. So our grandma sees this and runs into the street and pushes the little girl to safety but at the sacrifice of herself. The father, the other two children come running to the girl. They take her over to a, a park bench where she's crying. And we finally find out what the problem is. She loved her mother dearly. And her mother said she'd never leave her. But then her mother died and did leave. And now she knows that this lady left her too. That She, she was just a liar. She said she'd always be there. But she's a liar too. And then they had the girl open her eyes. And there's the lady. She's fine. She can't be hurt. She tells this girl that. She says, I can't be hurt. I won't grow old. I can't get sick. And I can't get hurt in an accident. And I can be here for you. This little girl breaks down calling her grandma. 
They go off down the road to have ice cream, and the story continues on from there. We show the children growing after this, the grandmother teaching them, giving them lessons in life, lessons, of course, from school, and helping to inspire them to become the adults they're going to be. For the young man, the father, he has found a comfort in her, this matronly lady that he can talk to, not as a wife, but as someone he can talk to and share his his frustrations of being a single father, and she helps him too. As our story comes to a close, our children are all grown. They're ready to leave the house. They're having one last chat with the grandma. They're asking her, said, what will you do now? And she said, well, I'm going to go back to the, I've seen the body electric to be disassembled. And the children are like, no, you can't, they can't kill you. She said, oh, no, no, I won't be killed. Basically, they're going to take my consciousness and they're going to put it in this well with all these others. And we're going to come together and we're going to share what we have learned. And the children didn't understand. And she goes, just as I have inspired you, just as I have taught you, you have inspired me, you have taught me, and I'm going to take the lessons that you taught me to share with the others so as we go to be with a new family, we can take those lessons and be with them and be a more effective person to guide them. You see, inspiration doesn't necessarily go one way. It can go both directions. You have to be open to it. You have to be able to let go of what you think are hardcore facts. You have to open yourself up to possibilities. And as you open yourself up to possibilities that other people inspire in you, and you run with them, maybe, just maybe, you'll inspire them right back. Or you'll inspire a third person. The The chain is endless for what you can do and how you can pass it along. And that is my Twilight Zone for the week. Now it's time to sit there and go for that movie review. Like I said, my first time to do one on here. The movie is going to be Bohemian Rhapsody. Going to the movies is a new experience for me again. I talked about getting hearing aids earlier. And so I've, I've worn them now for about four or five months. I just haven't done movies very much. I was worried that I would hear too much. to be too overpowering. And fortunately, so far, it's been good. But I'll tell you, when you first get hearing aids, they first tell you that you're a candidate. It's, it's a bit much. It's, you know, a sucker punch. It feels like you just got your head slapped back due to an illegal kick to the face or something. It's a lot to deal with, but fortunately... I was able to pull it okay, handle the movie, and ready to sit there and see what I can do on this thing. So let's get back and go for it. Now, for me, a movie, when I do a movie review, my thoughts are not necessarily based on the same as other reviewers. Remember Siskel and Ebert with a thumbs up, thumbs down. And, of course, the guys from Break with it, uh, In Living Color who would give, you know, give things, how many, you know, how many snaps in a, you know, it was like, two, I remember one, like two thumbs up and a double snap back as they did all their bit, having fun describing the movies in different forms. Well, for me, it's not, do I think this is going to win the Academy Award? Do I think the actor's going to win the award? Do global, Globals or anything else? For me, I break it down to how did I enjoy it? And it comes down to movies aren't cheap. So was it worth the full price? 
Should I only pay matinee price? Is it worth movie and dinner? Should I wait for it to come out on you know cable TV? Should I wait for it to come out on Redbox? Is this a definite buy? I, you know, basically it comes down to you know how much was it worth the money I spent. This week's movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. I have looked forward to this movie being made for years. I mean, we're talking Freddie Mercury. But what would the movie concentrate on? Back in the 80s, I remember when Freddie Mercury was, well, getting a little more outrageous. In the 70s, the, the, the hair, the clothing, everything else. Well, they were British. We didn't think twice about it. But in the 80s, with the short hair, the mustache, and everything else, and a time of our world when certain lifestyles were not accepted, especially in the state that I lived in. You know, it's kind of like, what's going on with Freddie Mercury? What's happening here? We hear the stories where they would, instead of asking about their latest album, instead of asking the band members and what they're doing, everything focused on Freddie, everything focused on Freddie's private lifestyle. And, but then the musical Queen just comes through. My sister had Bohemian Rhapsody on 45. She played the heck out of that thing. I don't even know if that record survives to this day. When Wayne's World came out and Bohemian Rhapsody shot back to number one, it was Queen all over again. And as everything happened, we just, you know, you forget about what Freddie's lifestyle was because Freddie's lifestyle didn't matter. And that is what the movie came down to. The band was directly involved with the production of the movie. If you remember, Sasha Barry Cohen at one point was slotted to play the part of, you know, Freddie, of Freddie Mercury. But he wanted to sit there and focus on Freddie's private life, his private activities. And the band felt the movie should be about the band queen, about the band's accomplishments up to Live Aid. Freddie Mercury was a part of it, but the movie was not based off of solely Freddie's private lifestyle. They touched on it. They glossed on it just a bit. Some people are disappointed they didn't go more into it. I think it's a question, wanting a question of what did he really do? How many men was he really with? Whatever. It doesn't matter because Freddie Mercury was a musical genius. The movie starts off back when him at Heathrow when he was loading luggage. Can you imagine Freddie Mercury loading luggage? They showed him as he got into his first band. Now we're going to get touch on that real quick. As he gets in the first band, there are things that are not quite accurate. During the movie, there are inaccuracies with time. Specifically, which concerts took place when. They took a concert in Rio and moved it way earlier. They took some songs and said they were created several years later than they actually were. And even the fact of when Freddie's diagnosis would be found out, they moved it earlier in time than it really happened. But that's one of the main things they really, you know, dealt dealt with for the errors. They focused on Freddie. They focused on Brian and Roger and Deacon, the band, as they worked to the different things, as they became a band, as they cut that first album, saying, we've got time left over. Let's be experimental. What can we do? And to be discovered by these people who are like, what's the sound these guys are creating? Taking it on as they went that first album and the sounds it went into the creation of the song Bohemian Rhapsody itself as they worked out there on the farm to create these 
so many different sounds and the different they showed how the different members of the band all contributed freddie was not the only writer obviously brian contributed roger contributed deacon contributed they were all writers they all brought things together one of my favorite parts when they described themselves as a a family of a bunch of misfits who were did not belong together but were together as a family and then belonged to all the other misfits out there they created music during a time. I've talked about people about the 70s music, Cal. So much of that music was a lot of love songs, a lot of songs of peace is following the Vietnam War. And the beginning of disco. Thank God we survived that one. As we went from southern rock and doo-wop sounds into the sounds of the 80s and forward, you know, the, the metal that would come up there. And Queen, with this operatic sound, that nobody conceived, but I but I'm I'm digressing away from the movie again. We show the band; they show the band coming together, how they created this sound, the development of a relationship between Freddie and the one lady, the one lady love of his life. They showed how the band moved forward, how they got tired of performing, and how it all drove up to the Live Aid concert. The Live Aid concert was inc- it was so much. I mean, I, I remember going through the movie, and different parts of the movie. You know, we're over there in the recliner watching it, the great sound system. When Wheel of Rock You came on there, I couldn't stamp my foot on the floor, but I was sure doing it on my leg. We Are the Champions and other songs. You're just wanting to sing them along, but you want to watch the movie because the movie calls out, especially to those of us who were there and remember Queen when the, the, those songs first came out. After the the show was over. I mean, we looked back there, the Live Aid concert portion of the movie. They did the whole set almost. And they worked so meticulously to recreate Freddie's movements, the way he walked, his strut, the way he handled himself on stage. The best way I'll describe it is Remy Malik made Freddie Mercury be alive again. And that was one of the best parts of it. For the, If you're a Queen fan, definitely go see this. You'll you'll love seeing Freddie again, and Roger and Brian, the way they were recreated, it was just an incredible movie that brought out so much emotion. So in my scale of, you know, was it worth it? It was worth full price with popcorn. And if you're going to someplace like Alamo Drafthouse, drinks and dinner, and I've already pre-ordered on the Blu-ray, so that should tell you something else there. Great movie. I hope to see it in the awards section this year. And we'll have to wait and see what happens. Remy Malik, incredible job, dude. So, if everybody wants to go to see movies, that's what I'm recommending this week. It's time to head towards the closing of this now. I try to keep it in around that 30, 40 minute time frame. So, but tonight we've talked about inspiration. So I'm going to try to inspire you now. I would like you to consider what I have to offer. Thanksgiving's coming up and Christmas shortly after that, but you've got a calendar. You know what time of the year it is. There are a lot of people in this world who are dealing with cancer. They're dealing with being in the hospital. They're dealing with being hurt. Blood supplies are at an all-time low this time of the year. 
my own uncle was in the hospital his final year of his life with cancer, and he couldn't eat anything. His grandkids came up, and they would take and take a pictures of a turkey and tape that to his ivy, his ivy bags. So it was as if he was having his turkey for Thanksgiving. I am a blood donor, or at least I have been. I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. I'll explain that. I started off donating blood back when I was, as, early, as soon as I was able to do it. My father ran a heart-lung pump for open-heart surgeries, and we talked about the amount of blood that was used. I even had a chance to see something in person one night. It was when we were down there, and an aneurysm was going on, and my dad had to get his machine checked out before a surgery the next day. And they were having trouble with an auto-transfusion unit. And so he, they invited him into the room to help him get this thing fixed. And they finally got it fixed. And they celebrated because it was the first time they had ever gotten this thing to work in Oklahoma City. And the surgeon saw me over there by the door. And he told me how much units of blood they just saved. That was one of my big inspirations to get me to donate blood. He told me that they had just saved nine units of blood. There was 10 people celebrating because nine units of blood had just been saved. I meant nine units of blood that could go for somebody else. So as soon as I was old enough, I started to donate blood. And for many years, I would donate blood on a regular basis, whole blood, blood drives at work, blood drives to school, until one day something very particular happened. It was 1991. I don't remember the exact day, I just remember the year. I was driving to work, and a man named David was on the radio. He had called in to talk to him. He had leukemia. He had already outlived his life expectancy by four or five months, and they had no idea how many more he had left in him. It was a fight every day. And the only way he could save his life at that point was through a bone marrow transplant. Now... Bone marrow transplants are one of these things that get very particular. Because, you know, blood, it doesn't matter. You know, any person with A can give to another person with A, B to B. We all know about the universal donor of O, O negative in particular. But bone marrow is sensitive. Bone marrow requires so much more than just a blood type. It will even go into genetics everything else that matters. So it's, if you are of a Hungarian descent, you are more likely to find a match among somebody else who's Hungarian than somebody who is Egyptian. But nice way I can put it. This man had, was not able to find a match among his own family. Most likely his parents, child, maybe a sibling. He'd exhausted everything in this family, and he was out there in the unrelated donor database. And he said the only way that he was going to survive was if somebody was, became a match for him. But there was no match for him at that point, which meant they needed more people to get into the database. He talked about what it would take. Basically, you go down your register, you get tissue typed. It's about a, it was, back then it was about a $70 fee. Or you could donate one unit of platelets. 
Seems simple enough. And that would take care of it. And I listened to that man that day as he talked about what it's going to be like to die. He never cried. He never weeped and wailed. Didn't insist. But he made it plain. I'm going to die. And if you can't help me, then I'll, I will die. But if you can help me, I'd like it if you would. He talked about matches. At that time in 1991, the chance for a match in the bone marrow database was one in 100,000. But here's the kicker. That's for a Caucasian. I made the comment about genetics that come into a play. In 1991, for a person who's African-American, the chance of finding a related match in the bone marrow database was over one in one million. There's a chance, there was a push to get minorities in particular registered, a chance to help somebody else. They said for these minorities, there was no tissue typing fee. Just please come down and volunteer. I listened to a story that day about the bone marrow database. If you'd like more information, I'm going to direct you to bethematch.org. I went down to the bone, to the blood donor center. I talked to him. I got registered. And it took a platelet donation. And platelets, for those who have donated blood before, there are three units to blood. And they talk about when you donate a unit of blood, you can save three lives. Because they'll split it into red cells, the plasma, and the platelets. But cancer patients, cancer patients are sensitive sometimes. And to get a full unit of platelets, they call it a 12-pack because it takes up to 12 donations, 12 separate donations to create one full unit of platelets. So when you go down donate platelets, they have this machine, it's called apheresis. They draw off all the blood. As it goes in the process, it will separate the blood into the three components. They draw off the platelets and you get your red cells in the plasma back. It takes a couple hours to do this. But since you get your red cells back, you can come and do it again. You can do it up to 24 times in a year. And I got into the program because my uncle I talked about died. He died in 1983. I had another friend who died of skin cancer. I had an aunt who died of lung cancer. Eventually my own mother would die of pancreatic cancer. When you see cancer around you and you know the fight that goes on, sometimes you're inspired to help. I was. I started donating platelets. I started donating up to 24 times a year. I'd keep it matched out. I did it until my veins could no longer take the process. At that time, I had donated over 51 gallons of platelets. It's been a few years now. I'm hoping I can get back into this next year, get to that next gallon. I'm... I'm not done yet, and I'm going to donate more platelets along the way. I would love if you join me along the process. If you're not willing to do the platelets at two hours, if you go down, drop off a pint of blood, you can help some lives. It's Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. Everybody wants to be home with their family. But did you ever think that if you took time, that little bit of time to drop off some blood, Maybe you will give the chance to somebody else to come home for the holidays and spend time with their family.
Thank you all for listening again. My name's Jay. I'm your watcher of the night. Hang out there, guys. And don't remember, I'm always watching somewhere.